Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. So today I want to discuss ruling class cults. Uh, it seems right now from the Ukraine proxy war to the internal battles inside the U.S. that all of us are being victimized by uh, a split in the ruling class in which both of them are essentially forcing people or trying to force the people to decide between dueling cults. And Joe Biden touched on one side of this this week when he talked about MAGA Republicans. He gave a speech on the soul of the nation and uh, against a uh, you know ominous red backdrop with Marines flanking him. Talked about MAGA Republicans as essentially a cult where they're following one leader who rejects reality and accepts conspiracy theories and refuses to accept the outcomes of elections, which is true. Uh, Trump did, I think, baselessly challenge the outcome of the 2020 election and refused to accept its results. And it led to a riot uh, on January 6th. But what I think Biden, well, not what I think, um, what I argue uh, Biden missed is that he is part of a cult as well. Uh, And that is a cult that when Trump won in 2016, also didn't accept the results of that election, but just challenged it in a different way. Instead of a you know three-hour riot and some laughable court cases that got tossed out of court like Trump did, the Democrats challenged Trump in a much more sophisticated way, which I'll get to. But first, let's just hear a little bit of Biden's speech from this week. I will not stand by and watch. I will not the will of the American people be overturned by wild conspiracy theories and baseless evidence-free claims of fraud. I will not stand by and watch elections in this country stolen by people who simply refuse to accept that they lost. Okay, so that's Joe Biden obviously talking about Trump in 2020. And, you know, fair enough. Look, I think um, I've seen no evidence at all for any of Trump's claims about uh, the stolen election. And it came with all these weird conspiracy theories about uh, Venezuelan voting machines and Chinese infiltration of these machines, all this stuff. It was wild. But everything that Biden said there, you could easily, equally apply to his own party. In 2016, the Hillary Clinton campaign lost. And yes, while it's true that technically, unlike Trump, immediately, you know, uh, they conceded, whereas it took Trump uh, a while. It, it took Trump until basically after January 6th to concede. So Democrats have a a leg up on him there, although they officially conceded in practice, they didn't because they then embraced this conspiracy theory that Trump was a Russian asset and that Russia's help is why Trump won. And they even helped use the nation's most powerful law enforcement agency to sabotage Trump's presidency. Uh, And this was the open goal that basically the uh, claim that Trump conspired with Russia was going to bring him down and be used to impeach him or even arrest him, uh, uh, lead him out of the ha- White House in handcuffs. And that's why Hillary Clinton kept calling uh, Donald Trump an illegitimate president. And what is all of that, if not a wild conspiracy theory? This idea that not only did Russia brainwash millions of Americans into voting for Trump or not voting for Hillary, but that Trump and Russia were in cahoots in this deep conspiracy uh, buttressed by sex tapes, P-tapes of Trump and other compromise. I mean, that's a conspiracy theory if there ever was one. But nothing in Biden's speech acknowledged any of that. Instead, all of this was aimed at his opponents when, look, if you compare what they said to what Trump said, uh, it's just as nutty. So let's take, for example, Hillary Clinton. This is her speaking in 2017. 
the Russians ran an extensive information war campaign against my campaign to influence voters in the election. They did it through paid advertising, we think. They did it through uh, false news sites. They did it through these thousand agents. They did it through machine learning, which you know kept spewing out this stuff over and over again, the algorithms that they developed now. So that was the conclusion. And I think it's fair to ask, how did that actually influence the campaign? And how did they know what messages to deliver? Who told Who told them? Yeah. Who were they coordinating with or colluding with? Because the Russians historically, in the last couple of decades, and then increasingly, you know, are launching cyber attacks, and they are stealing vast amounts of information. And a lot of the information they've stolen, they use for internal purposes to affect markets, to affect um, the intelligence services, etc. So this was different because they went public and they were conveying this uh, weaponized information and the content of it. And they were running, you know, there's all these stories about, you know, guys over in Macedonia who are running these fake news sites. And, I, you know, I've seen them now and you, you sit there and it looks like a, you know, sort of low level CNN operation. And or got, a fake newspaper, or like a fake the Denver news, Guardian. Like a fake newspaper. And so... The Russians, in my opinion, and based on the intel and counterintel people I've talked to, could not have known how best to weaponize that information unless they had been guided. And here. All right. So that's Hillary Clinton basically saying two things. One, that Russia brainwashed Americans into not voting for her. And that's why she lost. So it's their fault. But also they couldn't have done it without some American help without collusion, in her words. And who is she talking about? She's talking about the Trump team. So she's basically putting forward a wild conspiracy theory that her opponents who beat her uh, are Russian assets. And this was the dominant uh, democratic and media narrative for many, many years. So this uh, spectacle of Biden getting up there on his high horse and pretending as if uh, conspiracy theories and refusing to admit uh, defeat is just one party's problem is a farce. And it's a transatlantic farce because we not only have these dueling cults uh, in America in domestic pol- uh, politics of refusing to accept responsibility for their own losses and instead blaming their failures on all conspiracy theories. We're also seeing this now with uh, the proxy war in Ukraine, where it's similar dynamic where our leaders are guided by something beyond just serving the people and putting out policies that uh, can embedder uh, their lives and having a debate over what those policies are. Now, ultimately, it's about subordinating everything else, just as is the case with both uh, the Democrats and, and Republicans, uh, to power, to their power. And nobody made that clear better this week than the foreign minister of Germany, who's a member of the Green Party, who basically outright said that the goal of a proxy war in Ukraine and bleeding Russia and Ukraine is more important uh, than her voters. And even if her voters suffer because of high energy prices, it doesn't matter because Ukraine, in her words, and what that really means is her conception of Ukraine, this idea of using Ukraine for a proxy war, that comes first. So let's hear what she said. But if I give the promise to people in Ukraine, we stand with you as long as you need us. 
then I want to deliver, no matter what my German voters think, but I want to deliver to the people of Ukraine. And this is why, for me, it's important to be always very frank and clear. And this means every measure I'm taking, I have to be clear that this holds on as long as Ukraine needs me. We are facing now a winter time where we will be challenged as democratic politicians. People will go on the street and say, we cannot pay our energy prices. And I will say, yes, I know. So we help you with social measures. But I don't want to say, okay, then we stop the sanctions against uh, Russia. We will stand with Ukraine. And this means the sanction will stay also in wintertime, even if it gets really tough for politicians. So all this to me is cult-like behavior. Cults require uh, sacrifices for a perceived higher goal, a higher power, a higher leader. Uh, In the case of Trump, you know, look, He talked about from the beginning, only I can make America great again. Uh, Only I can fix everything. I can drain the swamp. And he's developed a kind of cult of personality around himself. So I think you can say that there's cult-like aspects to his whole movement. The same thing, though, with Democrats. Um, They are a little different that there's not one singular figure, but there is a worship of sort of institutions that are ultimately centers of power like the FBI and other national security state bureaucrats. That was the premise of Russiagate, that Robert Mueller, this uh, patrician in Brooks Brothers suits, is going to save us. He's our savior figure. Now it's Merrick Garland. And every time it's the appeal to the rule of law and the rules-based international order. And, uh, the, uh, and they embrace conspiracy theories that are just as wild as their MAGA counterparts, that everything is the fault of Russia And there's a hidden conspiracy with Russia that will solve all of our problems. That's cult-like behavior. And same with NATO, too. NATO is The NATO cult is basically saying that uh, even though you will all suffer, you will be cold this winter, you're going to have to ration fuel. Uh, Just today, Bloomberg reporting that um, the metal plants in Europe uh, feeding uh, aluminum to European factories, that they're closing because of the energy crisis caused by the proxy war in Ukraine. All these jobs, all these livelihoods have to be sacrificed for the higher goal. In the case of NATO, that is essentially expanding NATO hegemony and weakening Russia. That is the cause of that cult, which we're all supposed to be on board for, we're all supposed to sacrifice for. And, um, you know, what's my takeaway? I don't know. It's a problem when our ruling classes only offer us the, the opportunity to be members in cults and not be, address reality. Uh, because, and the through line with all of them is not, nobody has real solutions to actual issues, To uh, has actual solutions and policies that can improve people's material well-being. And this is something absent from Joe Biden's speech in talking about the battle for the soul of the country and how hard things are. There's no recognition at all of class and the... Um, deliberate immiseration of the working class over the last many decades, which Joe Biden has played a big role in, along with his Republican counterparts. And in the absence of any willingness to address that, you have to divert people into these fantasies uh, about uh, the other, only the other side being malicious and only our side being the answer to uh, this, this existential problem with democracy. And it also means, you know, when it comes going back to Ukraine, that you'll see everybody as pawns. So, We just heard a German politician saying that she doesn't care about her own voters, what they think. And this is Lindsey Graham uh, bragging recently that Ukraine is willing to fight uh, to the last person. And in his words, that's a good thing.
four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. So that's Lindsey Graham, and this continues to be the policy. And we just got a reminder of this uh, this week when Fiona Hill, who was a former top official under George W. Bush and Trump, uh, came to prominence during Trump's first impeachment after he froze, briefly froze some weapons to Ukraine. Uh, she wrote an article in Foreign Affairs where she confirmed something that uh, we've talked about here before on this show and other shows, which is that there was a peace agreement or the outlines of a peace agreement between U.S. between Ukraine and Russia in late March and April. And they were going to finalize that with follow-up talks in Turkey in April. But then Boris Johnson came to Kiev and told Zelensky, no, uh, uh, Putin is not someone to negotiate with. We need to pressure him. We think we can win this war. And if you reach security guarantees with Russia, we're not going to sign on, which basically would make such an agreement worthless because for Ukraine to to, uh, reach a peace agreement with Russia and give up territory like Crimea, it needs security guarantees from the West that it will have its back in, in case conflict breaks out again. And Boris Johnson told Zelensky, no, we will not provide you with that, which essentially meant that such a deal would be impossible. Now, we knew that already. That was reported in Ukrainian media Uh, citing sources close to Zelensky. What Fiona Hale just confirmed is this, quote, according to multiple senior, uh, according to multiple former senior officials we spoke with in April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appear to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of of a negotiated interim settlement. And under under that settlement, basically Russia would withdraw to its pre-February invasion position uh, and it would retain Crimea, which is occupied since 2014, annexed. And in exchange, basically, Ukraine would promise not to seek membership in NATO and receive security guarantees. What Fiona Hill leaves out of her article in Foreign Affairs is what Ukrainian Pravda previously reported, which is that Boris Johnson, certainly acting at the behest of the U.S., he's not doing this on his own, told Zelensky not to do it. And this is her confirming that U.S. officials knew about this agreement and that this agreement would have ended the war. Uh, had it not been sabotaged. And the cause of weakening Russia is the cause of this NATO cult. And it means suffering for everybody else, which to me is a picture perfect definition of what a cult is. We just don't recognize that we're in one and we're suffering the consequences of living through it. All right. That's my rant. Uh, Let's take some calls. Kevin, you're first. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? Hi there. Hi there. Hi there. Um, I pretty much watch all of you and Jimmy and all the boys at the Jimmy Dore show. So I'm kind of up on pretty much everything. And I had kind of an idea I wanted to pass by, like, you know, all of you guys. I talked to Savvy Savs the other day. They've still got mandates going on at the airports and stuff. And, like, what about, like, doing, um, like, a trucker convoy to all the airports? What do you think? Uh, so vaccine mandates at airports, you're saying? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, because my parents are heading to Hawaii, I think in uh, Christmas or whatever, and they had to sit there, they, like they were getting boosters and stuff. I'm like, huh? Like, why, why is that in the, yeah, they said it was, uh, for traveling. So, and plus, um, well, down here I in Arizona, thought- we still have a mask mandate in all of our hospitals. Right. Well, I, uh, I haven't heard that there's still mandates at airports. I, I've been flying recently. I'm, I'm in Canada now and there was no, there was no mandate for me to get into Canada. And certainly there's no hmm. mandate to fly domestically in the U.S. Maybe Hawaii is different. That's but, weird. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know uh, why they would have to get them then. But yeah. what do you and think I, about the protest though for something like that? Uh look, I've never been for mandates. Um I thought uh and especially seeing working class people being fired from their jobs. I thought yeah. was um and uh but like you know I'm not a protest organizer, you know, so if, and especially, I just don't think, I don't think, it, I mean, your parents might've heard wrong information because I don't think the vaccine mandate is a thing now for airplanes, unless Hawaii is different. Okay. Yeah. I just know that, you know, they, they told me that they had to do it to travel and I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Like, you know what I mean? So that's, yeah. that was the only thing I was saying. So, yeah. But, and then also on just the protest, like, you know, having something where you could have, you know, the independents come together and maybe do it instead of having more red and blue. You know what I mean? No more, like no more red and blue. You know what I mean? Well, certainly that's what I think. That's what I think so much of what, uh, all this political talk right now is about doing. It's about preventing people from coming together on common interests. Right. And people do share, even if they have different views on issues like mandates or, uh, abortion, there are so many class interests that people okay. can align on. Everybody I think is hurt by the proxy war in Ukraine, but we're not supposed to organize around those issues. So anything I think that can be done to uh, break down the, I've, I've, been on, I've been on five, I've been on five TikToks, and every time I do the Ukraine stuff, they just sit there and permaban me. So yeah, it's, well, there you it's go. pretty bad yeah. out there. Yeah. It, it, it makes it difficult when you get censored for saying the wrong thing. And uh, yeah. it, it also makes it difficult when, I mean, look, I mean, speaking of cult behavior, um, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook just admitted again yeah. that uh, they censored a factual story about Hunter Biden because the FBI just came to him and said, be wary of Russian disinformation. And that was enough to get the FBI to get Facebook, the largest right. tech platform, to censor a factual story about a political candidate. I mean, that's this is crazy behavior, but totally normalized. Yeah. The FBI has been, you know, I, that's one thing I never understood was like, how anyone could even think any of our institutions like what movie can you think of that portrays him in a good light? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, watching Air America, that pretty much watching Air America in '91 when I was like six or seven years old, that pretty much opened my eyes to what the world was like at, at that point. <laughs> yes, you know, I still haven't seen that movie, but I really want to. I heard it's great. Oh, it's a it's it's literally you know the CIA is sitting there paying a, a general in uh, Laos. So, you know, yep. get their opium. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great documentary about all this by made by Alexander and Leslie Coburn. They actually made it for mm. uh, they made it for PBS Frontline in the late 80s. Uh, mm. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's it's incredible. They they speak to all these former CIA people who are flying planes for for drug lords. It's pretty amazing. Well, that and the best part was is at the end, the general and the senator are sitting there in the plane. You know, and the general's going, you know, you're not going to take me. You're not going to take me with you. And, uh, uh, well, don't spoil the end. Don't spoil, don't okay. Spoil okay. The oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. It was basically Ashraf Ghani in Afghanistan, basically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. All right, Kevin. Thanks for the call. All right, man. Thanks. Bye. Okay, Brian. And Brian, if you're there, there's a mute button on your screen to unmute yourself. And if not, 
come back in the queue and we'll see if we can figure it out next time you come back. Okay. Uh, Paul. That's not me. Hi there. Hi. You are up, Paul. What's your question or comment? Is that me? That's you. Oh, sorry. I, I just was tuning in because I love your show. I didn't think I was in the queue, but uh, ah. I think everybody ought to get together and, uh, you know, get off the uh, pot here and uh, start organizing uh, with a political party, like the People's Party, something. You know, we're just letting ourselves uh, flutter in the wind, and these people are taking advantage of us. The uh, People's Party has a platform, uh, no corporate money. After that, you can make it anything you want. And uh, everybody's got their, everybody's got their, are stuck up about uh, joining something. But I think everybody should get on the, get on the move and uh, get these people out of power and take power back. Fair enough. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Okay, Eric. It's Aaron Mate live. Can you hear me? I can. It it remains a very, you sound very similar to the Saturday Night Live announcer. So I'm always impressed. Oh, I don't, what's Saturday Night Live? What's that? I've never heard of that. I'm just kidding. Um, That reminds me, I did want to ask you, did you see the Rob Schneider um, comment that he made of about when he knew that Saturday Night Live was dead? Uh, No, I didn't. No, what did he say? He said that um, it was when, after Hillary lost, they did um, Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton playing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah on the piano. And, um, uh, you know, because Leonard Cohen had just died. And um, and then she, you know, she plays Hallelujah. And it's this very, you know, t- literally tone deaf, uh, but perhaps also figuratively tone deaf performance um, of Hallelujah. And then she turns to the camera at the end and says, I'm not giving up and neither should you. And then it cuts to, you know, the credits. And it's like, OK, because that, that's what Rob Schneider said in an interview. And he's a bit conservative, but he's not, I don't think he's wrong on this, where he said, like, that was, you know, like the worst response. And it's like so much of the derangement from this um, Russia gate and everything that's the elite cult uh, so interested in and, you know, doesn't see as cults, you know, they don't see that cultish as they see everyone else's cults, just not their own. Um, but it began with that, and it began as this propaganda byproduct of corporate power in this country that it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's like in Rwanda, they had the radio stations, you know, and right now we have the, um, you know, NBC Corporation. And, and even our, if I think of somebody like Hassan Pike or whatever, so he worked for the Twitch Corporation, you know, or the Young Turks, he worked for Katzenberg. But um, so that's why, I don't know, part of SNL, it's died is because it's become pure propaganda. But I wanted to bring that up just because um Oh, I was curious if you'd heard about that. Um, and the big kicker of that, I guess, is, um, you know, after 9-11, the SNL joke that they made, which they had Rudy Giuliani. Do you remember that one? Of course. Of course. Yeah. They, um, they turned to Rudy and they're like, well, can we be funny now? And he's like, were you ever? Uh, right. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? That I was thinking that perfectly encapsulates it because after 9-11, they could still make a joke and understand it was their job to laugh, you know. 
But apparent, but for these people, you know, well, Hillary losing is worse than 9-11 because it led to Trump, which led to COVID, which killed so many more people than 9-11, right? So, and also you, you're not a real patriot if you don't maintain that same emotional, you know, uh, histrionic feeling as you did after 9-11. And ironically, you know, the whole 9-12 project, that was a Glenn Beck thing, right? But anyways, I think that that some, that, that cult programming was just uh, so, you really have to resist it. You really have to resist yeah. And then, of course, SNL also did that thing during the Mueller investigation where um, they did like a song like All I Want for Christmas is You. And it was all about how they want indictments from Mueller. And it was like a big tribute to Robert Mueller. They had a big like picture of him as if he was like a saintly figure. That was um, have you have you seen that one? Yeah. And the really dystopian thing about that one, too, because it was all the lady cast members singing I Want Mueller. And there's something to be said. I don't know if you can talk about this in your book or something, but just the dystopian way our current society sexualizes political heroes, you know, like Mueller is sexy. Oh, and Donald Trump, he's gay. He has gay sex with Putin. It's gross. Absolutely. You know? it's like Absolutely. Stephen Colbert, whenever, whenever he does that, it's like, why do you feel the need to put that image in my head of the two of them having sex? Like, it is such a what do you call that? A lizard brain thing to do. But of course he thinks he's so enlightened and all that. Yeah, And stuff, it's also right? totally, it's it also, it's, it's also the most blatant public homophobia of the last many years. Like this, aha, Trump and Putin are gay and everyone's supposed to laugh at that. And everyone just forgets that we're supposed to be, um, you know, uh, against bigotry. You know, I thought like that was a whole big thing that separates Democrats from Republicans. But when it comes to the whole Trump and Putin thing, it was haha funny that they're, gay it was so and it's also just terrible it's a dumb comedy it's not funny um and yeah look robert muller robert muller robert muller there was an article in the new yorker magazine in the style section about his style his like bespoke uh brooks brothers suits and how it's you know what that signifies and it was i remember there was like an instagram spread from the new yorker too about what robert muller's style says about him and it was it was gross but he totally was this um father figure for traumatized liberals uh, who were just freaked out by the election of Trump and couldn't find any rational or reasonable way to explain it and handle it. And, uh, and then he bit. Uh, they, they, they want to believe that they're being betrayed. Um, but I will say this. I think that the jokes about Gorbachev who recently died, the, there's some family guy jokes about Gorbachev and Reagan being gay together. And I do think those are kind of funny and I'm gay, but in any case, uh, thanks very much, uh, Aaron. Have a good one. Thanks, Eric. I missed those ones. I missed those ones. Uh, I'll have to look them up. Okay. Josh. Um, hi, yeah, long time uh, fan of your your content and all the pushing back on Russia gave um, is is um, was a great uh, great comfort during the the height of Russia gate. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of discuss you know the framing this as a cult is 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 interesting and it, it's uh, illuminating to me in the sense that it kind of made me think about uh, George Orwell in 1984 about how there's this elite class that's disseminated.
Josh, I lost you a little there. That could be me, though. I'm not sure if that's me or you, but I can't hear you anymore. Hello? Hi, Josh. Hello? So I'm, I'm, hi. Hey. So I um, missed, yeah. I, I lost you there. I missed everything you said. I'm oh, not sure if it's okay. on my end or yours. I'm oh, not sure okay, if it's on my end or yours, but, but, but try Oh, to... okay. Well, I'll, I can, I, yeah. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was, I'll, to sum it up really quickly, um, all of the, the, the framing this kind of, um, propaganda and ideology as as a cult is illuminating to me and it's kind of helped me realize how um you know it, it the, the elite class might kind of propagate all of this and it comes out of these communication channels but sort of like 1984 it trickles down to to the professional managerial class that i sort of consider myself a part of i work in an office Okay, Josh, I lost you again, but I, I heard you say that you, you consider yourself partly a part of the PMC. So listen, I'm gonna take next. I'm gonna take the next caller, and you can try to come back in the queue, and, and we'll see if it, <laughs> that makes it any better. Okay, Heidi. Hi. Um, hi there. I just want to say hi. I really appreciate uh, your perspective on this because ever since I was in high school, I've always kind of seen not just America as kind of a cult with the exceptionalism argument, but yeah. also capitalism. And I know that you're like at least uh, tangentially associated with Richard Wolf, Professor Richard Wolf, right? You know of him. He knows of you. He quotes you. I, right? I certainly know of him. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I. I, I yeah. I, I certainly know him. I've interviewed him, but but that's it. I mean, that that's as far as it goes. But yeah, uh, great okay, guy. But but in that same vein, you know, the way he he um, lays it out that uh, capitalism is not allowed to be criticized. You mm. know, it's it's like a cult, and that's how I've always seen it. Anyway, um, my question though today is, uh, with the way that Nancy Pelosi refused to, um, you know, accept help with, you know, uh, maintaining order on January 6th and all that stuff. Do you see, um, and I know you don't like to speculate and I don't blame you for it, but um, do you see this as a possibility that it's like uh, the, the empire coming home to roost and that the federal government wants an excuse to be able to crack down on quote unquote domestic terrorists and to classify basically half the country as that? Uh, yeah, I think that's very plausible. Look, it's certainly a fact that the security response on January 6th was awful. And, uh, we know the mayor of DC refused, I think the offer of the national guard, or at least didn't take all the steps that she could have taken to have full security. So, um, it's plausible to speculate that, that there are some people in power who wanted this to happen, who wanted to justify a crackdown. I mean, that's not out of the ordinary. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take away from the fact that I think what Trump did was reckless and pretty crazy. But, uh, yeah, you have to wonder why there was such a lack security response. And that could just be the inherent racism of the system. Like if it was Black Lives Matter, certainly it would have been militarized. And because these are white people mostly or exactly. perceived 
you know, but, um, you know, I certainly well, don't. And, and by the way, I'm, yeah. I'm no fan of Trump. I don't know if I've ever given, given you that impression. I was total Bernie bro. I of course, uh, canvassed yeah, no, no. for him and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not making that case. No, 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 of course. But, um, so I think anything is possible. And certainly the idea that there are people who, uh, would have been fine with mayhem, uh, is totally plausible to me. Absolutely. Right. And the way they keep trying to say that it was armed, an armed insurrection. Nobody yeah. brought guns yet. I, all of those people are gun nuts. You know that, right? That's true. So, Everyone, it's, they always say armed insurrection, but yet uh, nobody was arrested, I think, even for a weapons charge. Right? No. There was, you know, and, and the um, only shooting was by the Capitol Police of uh, Ashley, what's her Ashley face? Ba- Ashley Babbitt, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Ashley Babbitt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can say it was a riot. I mean, it, it was a riot, but yeah. this idea of an armed insurrection is such a joke uh, and everybody uses it. Um, even in progressive media, it's a very common term. I just think, you know, no one's seen an actual insurrection, right? An actual insurrection was, for example, the coup in Ukraine that the uh, Biden Obama administration backed. I mean, that was an armed insurrection yeah. uh, and that was successful. And, that was successful. And there's proof and there's proof that it wasn't, uh, uh, what do you call it? The um, it wasn't Poroshenko or who was it? Yanukovych. Or, or it was it was Poroshenko, right? Uh, it, so Poroshenko was the he was the he he became president after Yanukovych. Yeah, um, it was the new administration. They wouldn't investigate it. That that's my point, right? It wasn't. Oh, the yes, I mean, yes. And one of the worst things that happened during the Maidan was a massacre right before Yanukovych fled. And nobody exactly. has been convicted of it. And um, yeah. there's a scholar from the university, there's a scholar from the University of Ottawa who's done a really detailed investigation. And he says that he can prove conclusively that the fire, that the sniper fire came from the pro Maidan side, that essentially this was done to blame Yanukovych's forces. And uh, which is not, you know, which is not the first time something like this has happened. Uh, it's an old trick to do to like basically cause a, a violent event, blame it on the person you want to oust and use that to, uh, carry out regime change, which is, which was, which was what the result was. Is Yanukovych was overthrown after this allegation that he oversaw a massacre of protesters. You're right. All right. Well, thank you for the feedback. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Okay. Hussein. Hey, what's up, Aaron? How you doing? Hi there. Uh, uh, are, are there other uh, good examples uh, of uh, conflicts that went around in, uh, in the world uh, and then uh, the U.S. and the West would just uh, let them go on when they could have stopped them with a click of a button or they, like, stopped the moderators from, from letting them get to a deal and let the fighting start stop? Because I could think of uh, like one example I was following really closely in 2006, the uh, conf- the war between uh, South Lebanon and Israel. I remember yeah. watching it closely because my family was there. So there, uh, the war went on for 33 days, and along uh, along the way, uh, Israel was trying to accomplish some goals and it couldn't. It got a lot of uh, pushback and fighting from uh, South Lebanon, and there would be meeting and moderators involved from. Uh, you know, all over the Western world. And I remember uh, Israel wanted to stop, but, uh, you know, the West and uh, U.S. would tell them to continue trying to achieve their goals. 
Like I remember that really closely. And I'm sure there are other instances in the in the world that, where this has happened. Uh, yes. Can you think what of did, Brittany? What did Condi Rice say at the time uh, to help justify the ongoing fighting? She said, the, the, uh, these are the birth pangs of a new Middle East. So essentially, yeah. the fighting had to keep going to give birth to a new Middle East because the Bush administration thought that uh, Israel would wipe out Hezbollah. And also, this was a test for them. I, they were using this war as basically a test to see uh, how far Israel could go um, in the hopes that this could actually lead to fighting Iran in a similar kind of war. So basically, Lebanon was like a test case for Israel to see how they would fare in a fight against Iran. And actually, the problem was Hezbollah did a lot better than Israel and the U.S. expected. Uh, and so that, that, that interrupted the new Middle East. Um, and that's I, I think, partly helps explain why the U.S. and Israel turned to a dirty war in Syria to help weaken one of Iran's key allies, because taking out Syria would make it easier to one day wage war on, on Iran or at least destabilize Iran. So, look, Syria is a good example of when there could have been an end to the fighting. But the U.S. chose to keep fueling the fight with more weapons and um, and allowing ISIS to advance. I mean, I, I played the clip on the show many times of John Kerry said that we were watching ISIS as it advanced on Damascus. Um, and we thought that that would put pressure on Assad and basically force him to negotiate with us his, his ouster. And so we could put in who we wanted. So basically Kerry was saying that the U S was willing to let ISIS grow in Syria to use that as leverage on forcing Assad's overthrow. And there's many more examples. I mean, um, the, all the conflicts in, in Gaza could have been avoided if Israel and the U S had been willing to um, negotiate with Hamas uh, but they weren't. So they've, they've chosen conflict pretty much every time there. That's true. And in, in Ukraine and Russia, same thing. They want to test, uh, maybe weaken Russia and test how far uh, they will take this. Absolutely. Um, I, wanted Absolutely. Ask, yeah, I wanted to ask you, did, did you see reports of a third base being built in Syria by the U.S.? And, you know, I see a lot of, like, reports of the U.S. Uh, like, uh, stealing oil from Syria. Do you, is there any pushback against these statements that uh, the U.S. Steers, uh, steals resources from Syria? Like, is there any denial from uh, from uh, any anybody on those claims? Well, you know, it's funny. I've written Cent, uh, CENTCOM, which is the U.S. military command in Syria. I've written them twice now to ask them about these reports about U.S. forces basically stealing oil and letting it go across the border to Iraq. And I haven't heard back. And that's the first time I've written CENTCOM and not heard back from anyone. And it's possible, uh, you know, there's a backlog or it's possible there's some new email address that I'm, I'm, that I'm not aware of. But it's strange. So I've tried to get an answer uh, to that, but I haven't gotten one yet. Um, but that's the allegation being made is that the U.S. is stealing serious oil. And look, it's, I mean, they're not keeping the oil in the ground and they're not give, really giving it to the rest of Syria. So it does have to go somewhere. So it makes sense to me that they'd be taking it out of the country, but I just, I haven't confirmed it for myself. And yeah, I did just see yeah, the new report of a, of a third U.S. base in Syria, but I haven't looked into it yet, but I just saw that today. And Syria in the meantime is struggling with, with oil and supplies and things like that. Thank you very much for taking my call. Have a good day. You too. And yes, yeah, Syria is, um, really struggling because look, it's uh, on top of it being occupied by the U S this comes after a 10 year dirty war uh, that left a lot of the country uh, in a really, really bad 
state. And compounding that, you have these U.S. sanctions that explicitly prevent serious reconstruction. So if you're a company in China wanting to help Syria rebuild, you're going to face U.S. sanctions. Or if you're if you're trading or doing business with a Syrian company in any core sector, you will face sanctions. So it's very difficult for Syria to rebuild, not only being occupied by the U.S. and having its resources being stolen, but being targeted by U.S. sanctions that make it very difficult for you to rebuild, even in the territory under Syrian control. And that's why, you know, uh, all the metrics of poverty have gone up, hunger is up, everything is up because of U.S. sanctions. And there's no effort right now at all in the U.S. to change that. And there's no, look, you know, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, all these people put a Ukraine flag in their Twitter bio and called for solidarity against armed aggression. Where are the calls to arm Syria to help resist the U.S. military occupation, which has been going on a lot longer even than Russia's occupation of of Ukraine? There's none of that uh, because, of course, Syria is on the wrong side of the of the barrel. Okay, thanks for saying for the call, Jeff. Hello. Hi there. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyhow, I kind of wanted to talk about Ukraine. And it seems to me that they're trying to provoke Russia into doing something to to make it a larger war. Do you ever get a sense like that, like all the bombarding the, uh, the, the nuclear power plant and then saying Russia is doing that when they actually have already have control of that power plant and, you know, just all the things that have been going on uh, throughout the whole thing. Because to me, that makes more sense than the idea that, that somehow Ukraine is going to gather up enough um, momentum to actually defeat Russia. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I think everyone there knows that Ukraine is not going to win this war. So thus we have to hear about this mythical counteroffensive in Kherson, while meanwhile, Ukraine is carrying out all these dangerous acts like shelling its own nuclear plant um, in a bid to cause a disaster that they can blame on Russia and hope, hope that that can turn the tide for them. Because the idea that Ukraine is going to, you know, wage this counteroffensive, that's just a myth uh, from as far as I can tell. So, yeah, I think they're trying to provoke Russia into doing something crazy and stupid. And, um, you know, it got to the point where in U.S. media, when they talk about shelling of the nuclear plant, no one will actually say who's shelling the plant when it just seems so obvious to me that it's Ukraine doing it. But because that's the wrong narrative, we're just not allowed to know that. Yeah. OK, well, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. OK, Larry. And Larry, if you're there, there's a... Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. Hi. Wonderful. How are you, Aaron? I'm good. Good, thanks. Perfect. Uh, Yeah, like I think that, uh, you know, Biden's speech the other day was, uh, you know, very ridiculous. I mean, the, you know, it's basically a warning of the fascist threat. And yet, you know, I think what's important is also what uh, Biden doesn't say about uh, in his speech and 
what he omits is, uh, you know, the Democrats' role in, in the, the rise of fa fascism in America, and uh, the Democrats play a central role in that. And, you know, of course, Biden isn't going to mention that, uh, you know, because it's completely self-indicting. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats... Uh, have played a central role in uh, fueling the rise of Trump and basically everything they've done uh, over the last 30 years, their economic policies, their policies of class war. I mean, this is a party of Wall Street and U.S. imperialism and uh, it's a uh, really bad and you know they speak to the American people like children because they're completely incapable of saying the truth that you know the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both represent the capitalist elite and you know Trump is the most ruthless expression of the capitalist that's right elite that's right and you know that uh the Democratic Party is not going to save the American people from the rising uh, fascistic threat that Donald Trump and the, you know, that Donald Trump represents. But, you know, the Democratic Party is strengthening his hand by just blaming him exclusively for this. They don't actually blame or they're covering for the substantial sections of the ruling class who support Trump in the military, right. the bureaucracy. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. And look, you know, it's um, Barack Obama just won a Emmy for best narration or something in a documentary series. And that's the kind of president the establishment needs is someone who can smoothly and uh, soothingly narrate a documentary a production that's what obama was he is a yes uh, he's a narrator who who puts a you know a very kind spin on a very ugly system and you can't have someone like trump who is very naked and very blunt about all the ugliness about the u.s yes. system at the helm and that's the that's the fundamental Absolutely. problem with him and that's why i mean policy wise there's very little difference between trump and his biggest detractors in the media and in politics it's just only in terms of tone and style and who who is the best who is the best steward of the machine thank you larry yes call. exactly thank yes thank you okay brian hello yes hey it worked this time uh, apparently my phone app wasn't updated for the call-in and it crashed before so if anybody has a problem update the app uh aaron i'm wondering if you had a chance to see roger waters on his new tour you know unfortunately I missed it uh, because I was out of town when he came to uh, New York. So I've heard it's amazing. Um, some friends of mine yeah. have gone. And, uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, went last, I went last week when he was in the city, and absolutely it was it was amazing. And, and um, yeah. I think for this audience particularly, you know, if he's coming here, people, people need to go. I mean, I, I think a lot of the little message is probably lost on some people in a huge arena, you know. But still, sure, to hear yeah. people cheering for Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange when he talked about those sort of things was a very kind of cool 
experience. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm sad for you that you missed it. <laughs> but uh, it was it was me a, for me, it was fantastic. And, you know, and I, I never um, it's not like I, I'd ever have called myself a diehard Pink Floyd or anything, but it was just great music and a great message. And uh, it was fantastic. So I highly recommend it to people. And, you know, to, to get to your more to your topic, you know, I can't help, you know, with that speech of Biden's just looks so fascistic to me. And it, it can't, having just seen the concert, it reminds me of that song from the, the wall where he's playing the fascist and showing how ridiculous and absurd that is. And I just can't even imagine why Biden's people thought that sort of presentation would be positive for him in any way. I mean, it's just, it's just wild. I don't know. I don't even understand. Me either. I don't get it either. And, you know, what's amazing is it wasn't like random. They they thought this out, everything, the colors, the backdrop, yeah. the Marines. I mean, it was, and they thought somehow it was a good idea. But, you know, that's it's just amazing how um, how these political minds work. Like Dr. Oz, you see the video of him in the grocery store where he talks about buying crudite, yeah. right? Like someone yeah. thought that was a good idea to do that. <laughs> And uh, I guess people work in that realm just have different to see things differently than the rest of us do. I mean, the Oz thing is out of touch, but but like Biden putting forth this militaristic posture and with the red and all that. I mean, it's I just can't even understand the audience other than the nightmare situation that seems to be happening of the Democrats further moving to the right, particularly in foreign policy and war and where that leaves us, because it's a. I, again, I just can't understand what audience would look, watch that and be inspired in any positive way. But anyhow. Well, it's, it's, it's for a blue and audience and that's the tragedy. No one is willing to offer any kind of gesture towards the other side. Nothing, you know, if Biden really wanted to unite the nation or whatever it is, he would acknowledge that Russia gate was bullshit and that, you know, that like, and also he would also acknowledge the contempt that liberal elites have for Trump voters and the, like the sort of smug and snobby way, the way, the way they're all discussed. Uh, and uh, he'd acknowledge, for example, that there were millions of voters, according to one study, I, I think it was the university of Virginia or some, some university did a study saying there are millions of people who voted for Obama, who then switched over to Trump because yeah. they saw in both cases, they saw an outsider, you know, so he could try to appeal to that, but he doesn't because they're so, committed as any cult member is to their narrative and to, and to their higher uh, cause, which is essentially their own power and privilege, not actually reaching people and making a change. I mean, that's the sad truth of it. And cause I mean, to me, I, they, they wouldn't even need to acknowledge those mistakes that they wouldn't even need to acknowledge the Russia stuff or, you know, the, it's, it's not that hard to do common sense stuff that people would agree with and reach across. Like, I, they just don't have any interest in doing that. No. And so, yeah, it's all a messaging war, which is, uh, which is wild. But, but again, uh, just to, to go back to Roger Waters, again, there's a huge message in that of just we're all kind of one people and got to, got to get, get along and work together and do the right thing. So, um, I was electing you too. So. Well, here, here. And I'm so grateful to Roger for, you know, just as a fan of his music. And also, he's been really supportive of the gray zone. You know, there's like, yeah. There's a lot of people who like Grayson who aren't willing to acknowledge it publicly because <laughs> they just don't want to deal with like getting harassed. And Roger is someone who truly does not care. And um, I really appreciate 
him for it. You know, he's been very supportive. And uh, so anyway, yeah, if, if, um, if you have the opportunity to see a show, I, I hope any, any, anybody can, it's uh, he's, he's making his way across North America now. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry to miss it. All right. Ready? Thanks, Brian. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Okay. Anthony. And Anthony, if you're there, there you go. They make it really hard for you. They crash the app. Like, what the hell? Anyway. Uh, well, somebody was just saying, somebody was just saying that if you update, I think it was Brian who just said that if you update the app, it, it, it might help because I think oh, uh, if you're using an older version, it might, it might crash. Yeah. I missed that. Cause I was using the older version too. Well, uh, happy Labor Day, and uh, I saw Obama give a speech on Labor Day of 2011, and it was pretty funny. He didn't really say much, but yeah, I was sounds like Obama. Out. Sounds like Obama. Yeah, while while he was president, and um, yeah, I actually saw Jimmy last night. That was pretty cool, first time ever. So I would recommend it. Oh, you saw Jimmy? Day. You saw Jimmy Dore live? And yeah, in, in Michigan, it's pretty cool. No, no. Nice. Yeah. And yeah. Jimmy and Seth, little stand up, you know. <laughs> they didn't oh, yeah. uh, do the the TV show kind of set up there. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. No, they do a, a full set. I saw Jimmy's stand up set in Chicago uh, in July, and I had a great, it was so funny. I had a great time. I hadn't seen him do <laughs> that long a set before. He did like over an hour, and it was it was great. I was laughing my ass off. No, no lie. Well. I actually saw something funny too. Uh, I saw a Stand with Ukraine T-shirt out in the wild, not about an hour or two ago. Crazy, right? <laughs> First time I've ever seen that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, they're out there. They're out there, and you know, they're, they're I'm looking there. forward to the Stand with Syria. I'm looking forward to the Stand with Syria shirts that we're going to get now that there's another U.S. military base apparently being set up in Syria. Uh, members of Congress following the white helmets on Twitter, so that's a total scam. Yes, but yes, hey, that that yeah. that dark Brandon speech was crazy. It looked like uh, it looked dark. He put the homeland in homeland security. <laughs> dark, Brandon. yeah, he really did. <laughs> All right, yeah. Oh, wait, wait, it was Thanks, one last Anthony. thing I had. Oh, oh you yeah, know, go ahead. Dark Brandon, dark Brandon warned us against conspiracy theories, and if you want to really hit them where it hurts, uh, the twenty first anniversary of of a big conspiracy is coming up in a couple of days. So, yeah, that that's the one conspiracy they don't like. Yep. It was censored before all this other Corona BS was censored online. Yeah. Now they don't really mess with it. All right. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. Okay. Nicholas. Okay. Uh, and we'll take Mark. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I was, you know, when you raised the question of uh, of cults, I was thinking, you know, does the left have any cults, you know? And I couldn't really th think of anything, but but maybe somebody else has some some ideas, or, or maybe you have an idea about that. But but there is there is like a, a misunderstanding. You know, because I'm Australian, there's a misunderstanding that really annoys me. I mean, 
and it's to do with with COVID. And uh, because, you know, like we had some serious lockdowns in, in Melbourne, Victoria, uh, people think that that was an exercise in authoritarianism. But like what they what they forget is is we had a, a very partisan uh, way of of dealing with with it between states, and, and there was a we we had a conservative federal government who was uh, giving vaccine to uh, conservative states, but wasn't giving vaccine to our, like the, the places that, that had the lockdowns. And, and these places that had to enforce these lockdowns, um, they were that they were trapped, that they didn't have a vaccinated population. And that there was that, that was in the middle of the, the Delta outbreak. So they, they either had to just let Delta loose without a vaccinated population, or they had to try and do something about it until they got up to that 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 uh vaccinated level. So so we had, you know, conservative uh governments um in in well, a conservative government, especially in, in Sydney uh, and New South Wales, that were, you know, that were fully vaccinated. And then we had, you know, you know fa fairly unvaccinated populations in Melbourne, you know, uh, under Labor, and they were, they were forced to, to lock down because there, there was, you know, Delta was actually killing people, you know. I, right. I um, Mark, uh, people let's, who, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. let's wrap this up because I actually I'm, I have a lot more colors in the queue. So let's let's so oh, yeah, make your sorry. make your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, so that that was my you, you know uh, we're criticizing um, you know center left and, and center right, but I, I thought you know like um, maybe the left is is too critical, <laughs> but you know like that that was just something. Uh, in left discussions that annoyed me a bit. So I just thought I'd, right. I'd raise that. Okay. Well, fair enough. Thanks, Mark. Okay. All right. D. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Just wanted to get your opinion. Just wanted to get your opinion on, on the worldview. Um, the way the way I see it, there's two competing major ideologies. You've got that of China, and you've got that of the West looking for equal supremacy over the way things should be run on a global stage. Now, at the moment, you've got the West, where you've got the Europeans, and in North America, you've got the Americans imposing divisive policies on their populations. Do you, do you not see that as like an own goal? The way, especially when you look at the Europeans, they've been sanctioning um, themselves essentially and, and, and you can see that there's going to be major civil unrest coming up in the next few months. Well, I don't know about um, making predictions, but certainly if you're looking at the protests now that are happening in Prague, right, there was tens of thousands of people protesting um, the proxy war in Ukraine because they're, you know, they're worried about how it's going to hit them in the, in the energy crisis. 
And so that's right. Plus, look, plus, in, plus the Netherlands with the farmers. Yeah, yeah. So look, and I Germany mean, yeah. as well now in Cologne. Yeah, yeah. So look, in terms of like my sense of the mood, I definitely think there's dissatisfaction and there's uh, there's unrest, and people are be, are realizing that they're being sacrificed for the cause of NATO and the cause of U.S. hegemony. But what actually happens? I don't know. I mean, I do. I mean, just logically, it does seem that if people are forced to ration energy and go without heat and, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier that aluminum plants in Europe are closing because of the energy crisis. So if that happens to enough people, then why would people sit back and accept that just for, for the cause of basically denying Russia a victory in Ukraine and, and basically denying an end to the Ukraine war that's been going on for eight years? I mean, that's ultimately what this is about. Russia didn't invade Ukraine one day because it's imperialist. Now, you can disagree with Russia's invasion, but to pretend that they just invaded because they wanted to conquer Ukraine is, is, is ridiculous. I mean, they were invaded after an eight-year war that has killed at least 14,000 people that the U.S. refused to end, refused to help support the Minsk Accords, which would have ended that, that uh, war. So for the cause yes, but- of continuing... So for the cause of totally, continuing totally, the war, totally agree, Aaron. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah. So, so for the cause of continuing that war uh, for longer, people are going to be willing to go hungry and cold and lose their jobs. It doesn't seem likely to me. But elites don't live in that world. They, and as we heard before from that German foreign minister, they hold their own voters in contempt. So, if that is the prevailing attitude among elites, there's no reason to. I think that people won't push back, but you know, who knows? Um, things happen when they happen. Yeah, it's like they, it's like they don't learn from history because you look at you know look at the centuries over the generations. I mean, look what happened during the French Revolution. It's it's like we don't learn from history, right? Yep, that's right. All right, D, thank you for the call. Thanks. Okay, Dan. And Dan, if you are there, there's a mute button to um, unmute yourself. And to everyone, especially if you're in the queue, you might want to see if you can update the app because it sounds like that's been causing some problems for people who have not updated it yet to the most recent version. So that could be why people are having problems calling in. So we'll move on to the next caller, to Vin. Hey, Aaron. Uh Appreciate the show. Appreciate Gray Zone as well. Uh, I love the work you guys do. I've followed you guys for a while, but I really respected you guys for being like the only left media platform, or actually one of the only platforms that was critical of the COVID policies uh, and what they meant to ordinary people. So I appreciate you guys for that. Uh, well, listen, thanks. To, listen, yeah. let me just say, I can't take any credit for that. That was all Max Blumenthal. I, I stayed silent about COVID because uh, I just... No, I, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I no, mean, I've always yeah. enjoyed your guys' work on foreign policy and things of that nature as well. Fair enough. So, fair enough. I just yeah. don't want to take... I just don't want to take credit when it's not deserved. And, and Max, fair you enough, know, uh, Max really um, felt very strongly about uh, the way COVID lockdowns and mandates were hurting working class people. And uh, he took a very, I think... Um, <coughs> 
bold stance that cost him some, you know, friendships and and supporters. But I, I think he's been personally vindicated given how things are have borne out. And so um, I appreciate what he did as well. Yeah, certainly, certainly vindicated. Uh, I wanted to touch on just a couple of things uh, regarding the topic with the speech. Um, I, I I find it strange that there's like a there's a such a reluctance for just. I understand you have your, you know, stat, your your talking heads on the news, cable news, or whatever. They're gonna say whatever, but just a general political commentators. That to me, that speech was pretty much, um, yeah, it was. You can call out Donald Trump. That's fine. I I don't have a problem with that. But a lot of that was seemed directed at the supporters of Donald Trump. I think it was pretty clear. Yeah, they said MAGA multiple times. Yeah, and to me. It's 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 very much projection when they call MAGA fascists the Democratic Party because to me, I see parallels with the Democratic Party in its current iteration very similar to the kind of Bush era um, administration in terms of they have deep administrative power which yep. cannot be said about Trump's uh, administration. They have yep. the coalition, you know, coalition of the neoliberals, the neocons, and all of that. They have a hold on mainstream American culture. Yep. They have a hold on information control with the social media companies and the major news outlets. And pretty much everything is consolidated to protect the Democratic Party and its interests. Yet the fascists are the people who have pretty much the party or the movement who has very little institutional control and has very little control of all the things I just mentioned. So I'm just yeah, wondering, I, like, how much of yes. this do you think is pure projection? And why do people not see that? Oh, well, look, I definitely think it's projection. Also, when it comes to wild conspiracy theories, that's the big thing that Biden was saying, that MAGA is all about wild conspiracy theories. Well, what about the wild conspiracy theory that Russiagate was for many years? And not just, uh, you know, one riot on January 6th, but like many years of everyone believing on one side that Trump was a Russian agent and that the truth was going to be revealed like, like any cult believes, you know, that one day we're really going to, you know, the, we're going to find out the Messiah is going to emerge or like whatever it is. It was very cult-like. And so, yeah, I do think it's projection. And I agree with you. Trump is a demagogue, but institutionally, you know, he doesn't have that much power, especially right now. Um, I do think he presents himself as a savior-like figure. So in his kind of cult, it's more personified in one person. In the Democrats' cult, it's more person- it's more channeled into institutions, into technocrats, bureaucrats, like the FBI, um, the National Security State. Um, and the result is the same, though, that you know the FBI, if it wants to, can suppress stories that are critical of whatever its goal is. And they can wage, uh, you know, proxy wars against foreign countries that they want without anybody having a say in those policies. So I do think there's a lot of projection going on. Absolutely. It's just the right. form, the, the titular heads of the, these respective wings are different. There's not exactly. one, per- there's not one person that pers- that personifies the, the democratic cult. It's more of like a, a class of people. Right, I think people focus too much on the, the the singular cult of personality when it comes to fascism, and I just I, I see no argument that the Trump movement is more fascist than the Democrat. I just see no argument for that. Uh, I I don't see how you get fascism without the merger of state power and corporation to 
disseminate, you know, power over the populace and control of information flow. I just don't see that. But um, it's a great point. It's a I great. Wanted... It's a great point right. that fascism and state power is not just about the exercise of power by one person. It's about institutions. And when you control the national security state, you control big tech and, and you, you, you control the means of people expressing themselves. That's a lot of power. And yeah, uh, yeah. it can't be a fascist if the CIA hates your ass. And for whatever reason, it's not like Trump was some savior or anything, but the CIA hated him. The military generals barely listened to him. Yeah. I mean, what kind of fascist is that? He could have took over the country if he wanted to during COVID. And he didn't do shit. So, like, uh, I, I totally yeah. agree. I totally agree. Uh, this, the second thing I just wanted to quickly touch on is, I mean, it's beyond clear that these policies with Ukraine, uh, that Europe and I guess the, the greater West, if you want to call it, have just completely shot Europe in the ass. It's like unbelievably obvious to anybody at this point. But I'm just curious because clearly, like, it's clear Russia is going to complete its objectives, whether it's just a matter of when that happens. But it's pretty clear militarily, this is no, there's nothing, there's no amount of support that, uh, aside from boots on the ground, which I don't think the West wants to do to help Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is finished. There's like the country known as Ukraine is no longer going to exist which is you know it's sad but that's the case but i'm just i have friends in europe i, I travel to europe a lot for business and it's the, what they're telling me about just the cost of energy prices um businesses are getting bills like ten thousand percent higher than what they actually pay for energy and people are in the streets right now where do you see europe going i'm just it's it's unbelievable to me that there's barely any coverage. I understand why there's no coverage because it would be admitting that what they've been doing has been a disaster and that Putin essentially won. Because Putin's been preparing for this since 2014, I feel like, um, in terms of the sanctions. It's not like he didn't know sanctions were going to come. It's pretty clear they were prepared for this. And he's won against Europe um, and the greater West in terms of not being able to take him out because I think the goal was regime change and that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, where, where do you see Europe going? And I'll hop up. Well, look, we can see where the people are going, which, you know, as we talked about with the previous caller, the protests going on across Europe, um, you know, tens of thousands of people in Prague against the proxy war in Ukraine and spurred by the fact that the energy prices are rising. And, and when the winter comes, that will, I mean, what we're seeing now is only just... A, a fraction of what will come because people will be desperate, cold, and losing jobs as a result of the prolonging of this war. But then there's a question of how it's essentially how craven and how corrupted are Europe's leaders? And um, this is the problem: we never know what's going on behind the scenes. We never know who's been bought off, who's been bullied. We only learn about this long after the fact. So, for example, I mean, an example very close to me is um, what happened to Jose Bustani, uh, the head of the OPCW. When he was getting in the way of the Bush administration, uh, when it was trying to invade Iraq, John Bolton flew to his office and said, you have to resign. And if you don't resign, we know where your kids live. You know, And Bustani refused to resign. He stood up to Bolton. 
And Bolton and the Bush administration engineered disaster anyway because they bullied enough nations into voting him out. But that's what happens. Um, and we only learn about this after the fact. You know, we, we, we only learn about what happened to Bustani, about the threat to his kids. I mean, many years later, that's when he first spoke about it. Right. So we don't know, you know who in Europe has been bought off, who's been threatened. You know, I don't rule any of that out. And um, it's a question of, you know, um, whether the people ultimately will rise up. I mean, that, that ultimately is what will change things. And certainly Germany is the country to watch because they're the heart of everything. They're the closest to Russia and they're the economic heart of Europe. And they're going to suffer the most, I think, economically as a result of this. So it's a question of how corrupt and contemptuous are their leaders uh, of their own people's needs. I mean, we heard the clip before that German foreign minister who says, well, I don't care right, about I was just going to bring that up, yeah. You know? yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Now, thanks, Aaron, man. Appreciate you, man. Appreciate all your work, man. Thank Good. you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Time for a few more callers. Omar. Hey, Aaron. Hi there. How you doing? Not bad. Um, I uh, just wanted to zoom through these things. I know you got a bunch of callers, but um, I can't believe that Katie uh, did like a subtle uh, shout out to me on the last uh, Useful Idiots. She like mentioned the people have um, a bunch of uh, icons that they use and call in and she <laughs> mentioned Yanis Varoufakis. Um, and uh, number two, um, I also really appreciate you engaging with your critics. Um, I think that that is so admirable in this environment. Uh, you went on the vanguard and and engage with them. I kind of lost respect for them, the little that I had um, with that exchange. Um, but I really admire your um, your bravery, your 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 uh, kind of openness to engage. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Glenn Greenwald, who's also been vilified. Um, and number three, uh, I wanted to bring up. Uh, again, uh, put it on your radar. There's a story from 2014 uh, that was on the, in The Guardian uh, by Nafiz Ahmed. He's a academic and it's it's titled uh, Pentagon Preparing for Mass Civil Breakdown. And it's basically a, a story of uh, the DOD funding social science research to weaponize it uh, against political movements, activists. Uh, and I think that would be a great story for the gray zone to follow up on because uh, nothing has really been said in these eight years. I don't know what's happened with all that money that's been pumped into social science. Um, I come from a social science background and it's really... Uh, infuriating to see social science being used by the DOD, especially when there's such uh, research funding is drying up and uh, people have to resort to kind of selling their skills to uh, warmongers and anti-democratic institutions. So I sent you some links in the DM, uh, but yeah, just wanted to put that out there. Okay, thanks, Omar. Thank you for the, for the recommendation. I'll check it out. I appreciate it. All right. All right. M uh, Michelle. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good, thanks. Um, so I guess first question was, have you seen the Jon Stewart video? 
praising the uh, media's coverage of the war that just came out? I did. And let me actually find it so we can play a clip because it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, John Stewart comes from like the, the George Carlin tradition, you know, uh, critical of the establishment, critical of the media. I mean, that's what made The Daily Show so great is his satire of the corporate media. And uh, here he is praising uh, how the corporate media has covered the Ukraine proxy war. And I was disappointed to see that along with, I don't know if you saw the story in the gray zone that Alex Rubenstein just published, uh, but uh, he has an article. It's really, it's really bizarre where basically John Stewart took part at this uh, Pentagon event at Disney world and uh, honoring uh, athletes from militaries around the world. And one of the people who John Stewart honored was a member of the neo-Nazi Azov battalion and gave him like an award or something like that. What? Um, yeah. 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 Uh. That's up at the gray zone right now. It's the top story and it's really, it's really wild. So let me, let's listen to this. Let's listen to this John Stewart clip for people who haven't, uh, who haven't heard it. Let's listen to a bit of it. Yeah. We have a whole episode on how bad they fucking blow. These types of stories Ukraine, a war, this is what they're actually built for. And when they are uh, matched with their purpose and there is a story equal to it, boy, do they deliver. So that's John Stewart saying that the, the U.S. media has delivered uh, on the Ukraine proxy war because uh, it's matched to their purpose. And uh, come on, John, he's so smart. He's so bright. <laughs> that was just... It's hard, you know, when you're in that liberal class, there's so many rewards to conforming and so many red lines that just people are, are told that they just can't cross or else they're considered beyond the pale. And I think I, I think that's subconsciously what's going on here. Yeah, it's just I guess it's unfortunate because I think about him speaking out about Iraq at the time. And I was I guess I'm just kind of baffled by he I do think he's a smart guy and not that his opinion matters more than anyone else, but you have this like difficulty to communicate. Like I find it difficult to find it, to talk to so many of my, like I would say liberal or even other Bernie, like leaning friends who, I don't know. I, I guess my other question was like, what is the best method that you found for speaking to people about the war in terms of like, getting past misinformation is there like a good solid article that or video or something that like really breaks it down it's hard quickly because, it's hard, it's hard yeah. because the problem is like you need at least like five minutes you know yeah. uh because there's, yeah. you know there's nato expansion there's the u.s ripping up arms control treaties there's the war in the donbass the last eight years in the 2014 coup and the minsk accords it's it's hard basically i mean the quickest thing I mean, if I could offer a suggestion for it's basically the war didn't start when Russia invaded. There's been a war going on for the last eight years in Ukraine in which the U.S. and Russia have been on opposite sides. And it began with the U.S. backed coup. And a lot of Russian speakers in Ukraine have been killed and suffered because they've been under assault from a government that the U.S. helped install. I mean, that's um, yeah, that's that's one. But it's but it's hard. But also, people aren't even going to know that, you know. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> whereas you could, whereas you can say, you know, uh, Russia is an imperialist invader that wants to destroy Ukraine, and everyone can get that because that's the message that they're told twenty four seven in U.S. media. So that's the that's where it, it's difficult. People don't have the time to go read 
all these articles. But look, I've um, written a bunch on the background to all this at my Substack, and um, over the last totally. few months, yeah, there's a lot there. But, yeah, yeah, and I and I definitely appreciate them. And I think what I like, I've even tried approaching it with some people explaining the coup, and then being like, look, like it was a it was a pretty right wing coup. Like they've outlawed left wing governments. We gave weapons to like very extreme right wing elements. Like, how would you feel? Would you, you know, if yeah. if what Trump did was actually a coup and they had taken over, would you want to be like trying yeah. to explain like something just think along about those yeah, lines. like if January sixth had succeeded and it was carried out by Nazis and other people from the far right. I mean, that's what happened inside Ukraine in 2014. That's who the U.S. was behind. Uh, the heart of that coup were people from the far right. And they've taken credit for it. There's a yeah. neo-Nazi uh, in Ukraine who I quote in one of my articles. There's a video where he says, without us, Maidan would have been a gay parade. Oh um, <laughs> and he was bragging, basically, oh. that, you know, that, like, that the, the far right element is what succeeded uh, in in turning what would have otherwise been a gay pride parade into a coup, into a successful coup. I mean, so that's, you know, but again, most people will never know of that. Yeah, no, I guess that's it. I, I, I'm just, I guess in my last question would be, are there any groups that are like organizing an effective resistance right now? Like what's the best thing we can do to help advocate for the government to change its position? I know they probably won't well, listen, but like, yeah, look, just the fact that so much money, taxpayer money, is going into uh, this war. I mean, just just uh, this week, Biden. I mean, it, like every week, there's a new announcement of, a, of billions of dollars going to the Ukraine proxy war. But just this week, I have the figures here. Um, let's see here. Yeah, on Friday, uh, Biden asked Congress for 13.7 billion dollars in additional aid for Ukraine. $7.2 billion of that would be used to give new weapons and military equipment to Ukraine, replenish U.S. stockpiles, and provide other defense-related support. Uh, an additional $4.5 billion for the Ukraine government, and $2 billion will be used to offset effects on energy supplies uh, as a result of uh, the sanctions on Russia. So all this money is going to prop up a foreign government while... There's huge needs at home. I mean, there's like, look at the crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. So I think, you know, linking deprivation at home to massive spending on war abroad is, I think, a really effective message for people because it's one that everybody understands, you know, Um, especially after we were fooled over Iraq. I mean, people aren't as uh, prone to believing, you know, pro-war claims anymore. They're they're more skeptical, you know, but it's tough. That's at least what I thought. And now and then I, you know, look in my feed and it's like all of these little flags. And I guess I was just blown away by how quickly people bought the narrative and how much they're clinging to it and how angry some people get if you try to fill in some context. So thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, time only for one or two more callers. So I apologize to everyone who we won't get to today. Uh, Ange, go ahead. Hey, Aaron, it's nice to talk to you. Um, I was wondering if uh, you had read the, um, and this is kind of a Russiagate deep cut if, if you'll indulge it, um, but I was wondering if you had read the testimony from the DNC IT um, official. Yes, this is a very deep cut. And yeah. <laughs> I did read it 
I did read it a while ago. I read it like whenever the testimony came out, which was in May of 2020, if I recall right. correctly, that's when I would have read it. So, yeah. So my but basically, is, basically, but but for people who yeah. aren't familiar, this is basically the House Intelligence Committee did a whole bunch of uh, uh, um, depositions of people involved, you know, in in the DNC and anything to do with RussiaGate, and um, the transcripts were uh, basically buried for throughout the entirety of the Mueller probe. But finally, they were released in May 2020, and that's when we learned the CrowdStrike, the firm hired by the Clinton campaign. And that generated the allegation that Russia hacked the DNC. That's when they had admitted behind closed doors in 2017 that they had no evidence actually of Russian hacking. And so this interview you're you're referencing is of the IT guy working for the DNC. Yeah, I I bring it up just because, yeah, exactly. Um, And I bring it up just because uh, I was reminded of it recently with the Mark Zuckerberg interview with Joe Rogan. Um, he's talking about how the FBI approached them before the publication of this, um, you know, the sort of like the rumors of the uh, Biden laptop story. Um, and it was very similar to what happened here, where the FBI initiates with the DNC. You know, they say, uh, hey, we've been monitoring your servers and there seems to be some fishy activity. Are you aware of this? I was just yep. surprised when I read that testimony that that was the timeline that it wasn't the other way around. Yes. And, uh, you know, what Julian Assange has said is that uh, just because Russia or alleged Russian hackers were in the DNC system well before the time of the DNC hack, it doesn't mean that that's who actually stole the emails. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, we've we've yet to see even the basis for the FBI and CrowdStrike believing that it was even Russian hackers. Uh, everything we've seen so far has pointed to them not having any evidence like, like Sean Henry of CrowdStrike admitted to. So it is all very right. suspicious. And I've tried to get all these documents through uh, the Freedom of, Inf- of Information Act and I've gotten nowhere. So it's, it's one of these things we're, not gonna, we're probably not going to know about for a long time. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for taking my call. Thank you. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. I apologize to everybody who I didn't get to. uh, And uh, we just ran out of time. So I hope you'll call back in next time. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.